Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, January 25th, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part 14 of our commentary on the Gospel of John, and it is subtitled, True Signs and Wonders, which is one theme this evening that we will present. In the first two presentations, on our commentary on John chapter 4, we had spoken at length about the Samaritan woman, who was certainly a daughter of the remnant of the children of Israel, which had escaped destruction or captivity at the hands of the Assyrians, and which had remained in Samaria throughout the seven centuries up to the time of Christ. It is quite possible that her and her kinfolk ultimately became Christians and could have remained in in and around Samaria even until after the time that the Muslim hordes invaded and destroyed the Byzantine Christian culture of Palestine in the 7th century AD. However, Shechem and ostensibly Sukkar along with it was destroyed by the Romans during the Judean Rebellion of 65 to 70 AD. And in 72 AD, Vespasian founded a new city at the site called after himself Flavia Neapolis. Flavia being the family name of Vespasian. We hope to have illustrated how the encounter of Christ with this woman was a sort of parable representative of the ultimate reconciliation of the so-called lost sheep of the northern kingdom with Yahweh their God, which is indeed the very purpose and need for a Messiah in the first place. We then made several comparisons of aspects of this encounter with that of the later encounter which Christ had with the Canaanite woman. And by that we hope to have illustrated an example of the racial covenant aspect of the New Testament, where one woman had sought and received an earthly blessing, but she was nevertheless excluded from communion, while the other woman, being an Israelite, had sought no blessing, yet it was shown that she was fit for eternal life in spite of the fact that she was apparently even a sinner, having had five husbands, and a sixth man who was not her husband. After the discussion between Joshua Christ and Nicodemus, there was the testimony of John the Baptist, as Joshua was with his disciples when they were baptizing people by the river in Judea. Thereafter they departed for Galilee, a journey of well over 70 miles, and had stopped at Sikar to rest as they traveled through Samaria on foot. Ostensibly, Sikar would not be their only stop, but it would be the only one which John mentions as he proceeds with his account of these events. It is difficult to attempt to correlate any of these events with the Synoptic Gospels. In both Matthew and Luke, 
after the temptation in the wilderness. Christ is depicted as returning to Galilee, where he called the disciples to himself. Here in John chapter 1, we had learned that he already knew those disciples and had already spent considerable time with them, as they knew with some degree of certainty that he was the Messiah. The famous Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew and Luke, had probably not yet occurred by this time. This is because here we see Christ healing the child of an officer of the king. And John explicitly states that this is the second miracle which Christ had performed in Galilee. Yet after the Sermon on the Mount, which was also in Galilee, Christ healed the servant of a centurion, an act which must have happened at a later time, since we must accept the fact that John's words here are true. Now if this is correct, there is a significant amount of time between the temptation in the wilderness recorded in Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 4 and the Sermon on the Mount recorded in Luke chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 5. Out of curiosity, I had checked the book, a book which Clifton Emmeheiser had in his library, that's how I received my copy or his copy, I had checked a book which Clifton had occasionally cited in his own writing, A Harmony of the Gospels by A.T. Robertson. Regarding this particular incident, here in John chapter 4, which John is about to describe, there he places this event in order after Matthew chapter 9, which is impossible, since John said of this event that we are about to read, that this is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. But there have been troubles with any and all attempts to harmonize the Gospels ever since Tadian first tried in his second century A.D. work called the Diatessaron a work which we know only through relatively late copies. The commentator, Matthew Henry, more accurately places this account here at the end of John chapter 4 with the words in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4, where it says in verse 23, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. That view is much more accurate, but it is still not a perfect correlation. With that, we shall proceed with John chapter 4, at the point where Yahshua Christ had departed from Sikar in Samaria. And we begin with verse 45. Therefore, When he came into Galilee, the Galileans all welcomed him, who had seen how many things he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had come to the feast. And of course, they were compelled to go to the feasts. They were compelled to appear, as we shall discuss, at the temple in Jerusalem three times each year. 
The feast mentioned here is the Passover, which was mentioned by John at the end of chapter 2 of his Gospel, for which reason Christ had gone to Jerusalem in the first place. The next feast which is mentioned shall be in the opening verse of John chapter 5, where Christ returns again to Jerusalem. And again, in John chapter 6 verse 4, we see that another Passover is mentioned. And then a Feast of Tabernacles at the beginning of John chapter 7. Here is what makes it difficult to harmonize the Gospel accounts. Each of them are very incomplete, and none of them were ever really meant to be a synchronistically and perfectly ordered record of every event in the ministry of Christ. For example, the law commands that every Israelite attend the temple in Jerusalem three times each year. And Christ evidently kept the law, but few of those occasions are recorded in any of the Gospel accounts although John had recorded more of them than any of the others. This law is found in both Exodus chapter 23 and in Deuteronomy chapter 16 where it says, Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before Yahweh thy God in the place which he shall choose, in the feast of unleavened bread, and in the feast of weeks, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before Yahweh empty. In the book of Acts, shortly after the resurrection and ascension, the disciples of Christ are gathered for Pentecost, which is the Feast of Weeks, in Jerusalem with other Judeans from all over the Roman world. Later, Paul is portrayed as going to Jerusalem for Pentecost on one occasion, and it is also mentioned in 1 Corinthians. So we see that they kept that law, but Pentecost is never explicitly mentioned in the Gospels, and the Feast of Tabernacles is only mentioned once in John chapter 7. Relating to the ministry of Christ, the Synoptic Gospels mention only one Passover, the final one before the crucifixion, while John, in his Gospel, mentions at least three Passovers. We see that they kept the law, as the Apostles are recorded as having asked Christ of that one Passover, where it was that they would keep the Passover. We must also understand that since Christ was obliged to keep every point of the law during his earthly lifetime, he being without sin, that he must have kept the law of Deuteronomy 16, which we had just read. And therefore, he must have attended the temple in Jerusalem for every one of the three feasts each year. That would be at least nine, ten feasts, at least ten feasts, 
if indeed he was baptized when we think he was baptized, which would be at the Feast of Trumpets in the first year of his ministry. So the fact that so many feasts, and ostensibly so many journeys to Jerusalem, were not mentioned reminds us of how incomplete the gospel accounts are and how each of them really only contains a record of certain significant events which happened during the life and ministry of Christ. Continuing with verse 46. And my count concerning the ten feasts is sort of off the cuff, so it may not be accurate. I'd have to sit and think about it for a second before I really knew how many, but it's about ten. Then he went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a certain officer of the king, whose son in Capernaum was sick. In the King James Version, the word basilicus is nobleman, where we have officer of the king. The word is an adjective meaning kingly or royal, but here it is a substantive, acting as a noun. And for such instances, Liddell and Scott define it in part to mean of or belonging to a king and offer an example for the plural form hoi basilikoi the king's friends or officers which is why we translate it here as officer of the king rather than basilicus one manuscript the codex beze has the diminutive Basiliscus, which is a little king, a princelet or chieftain, according to Liddell and Scott, where we would imagine that to be a scribal error. The word in the Latin Vulgate here is regulus, which is a royal official, but it would not describe a member of the local Roman government since that would be a subordinate of the procurator or prefect of the province, who in this case was Pontius Pilate. Just who this official had been employed by is difficult to say. This event occurs around 29 or 30 AD, at a time when Judea itself had no king. The first king was the last king. I'm sorry, the first Herod was the last king. And he died shortly after the birth of Christ, probably in 2 BC. I understand most sources say 4 BC, but that's simply not true. After he died, and because of the problems with his son and successor, Herod Archelaus, the province was divided into tetrarchies, and several of his other sons were appointed to govern each of them under the supervision of a Roman official. The next king in Judea was Herod Agrippa II. I'm sorry, Herod Agrippa I. I screwed that up. Who was nominated for the title by the Emperor Claudius in 41 AD and he ruled as king over all the lands held by 
his father, the first Herod, until he died in 44 AD, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 12. His son, Herod Agrippa II, also held the title, and he is the Agrippa mentioned in the later chapters of Acts. But the family of Herod, regardless of the fact that they were Edomites, was nevertheless considered to be a royal family by the people of Judea. So perhaps this individual was a friend, but more likely a servant or officer of Herod Antipas, who is also called Herod the Tetrarch, who ruled Galilee under the Romans as Tetrarch from the death of the first Herod until his own death in 39 AD, from shortly after the death of the first Herod, because the short rule of his half-brother, Herod Archelaus, had intervened. Herod Antipas and his brother Philip, who was Tetrarch of Britannia until his own death in 34 AD, were brothers by the same mother, and Herod Agrippa I was their half-brother by a different mother, and all three were sons of the first Herod. So we are persuaded that this official was most likely an officer subordinate to Herod Antipas, who was the Herod who appears in the accounts of the trials and crucifixion of Christ. Verse 47. He, meaning this officer of Herod Antipas, as we are persuaded, he, hearing that Yahshua had come from Judea into Galilee, had gone after him and requested that he would come down and heal his son, for he was about to die. While it is only mere conjecture, perhaps this man, if he were indeed an officer of Herod Antipas, knew that Yahshua was in Cana because they were already keeping a watch on his activities. But in spite of the fact that he was employed as an official of the local government, this man must have somehow been persuaded that Yahshua was a man of God and that he could indeed help his son. Judea had suffered many insurrections in the first century, and several of them were described by Flavius Josephus. So it is plausible to imagine that the government was concerned every time a teacher or leader began to amass disciples. One major insurrection, just a few decades earlier, was led by another Galilean named Judas, who began as a tax protester. The capital city of Galilee, under Herod Antipas, was Tiberias, a city which he had built on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and kissing the Roman emperor's ass, he named it Tiberias after the emperor. And Cana was in the hill country, not quite twelve miles to the west. But if the man came from Capernaum, which is even more likely according to the narrative in the text, that is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and just a little over sixteen miles from Cana. Christ had already spent some time in Capernaum, 
as it is described in John chapter 2. And this man may have learned of him then. There is no record of Christ ever having preached in Tiberias, although later in chapter 6 of John's Gospel. It is evident that Christ may have passed through that city in order to sail to Capernaum. Now he responds to this official in verse 48 of John chapter 4. Therefore Yahshua said to him, Unless you could see signs and wonders, you would not believe. Here I have recently corrected the mood of the verb in the final clause of this verse, which was not rendered properly in the original translation, where I had, you shall not believe. The verbs for see and believe here are both in the second person plural, and therefore Yahshua seems to be speaking generally to the people of Galilee, to the people within earshot of him, and not specifically to this one man. This also seems to be a reproach rather than a fulfillment of any specific prophecy. For instance, in Matthew chapter 24, Christ had warned, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Later in his ministry, as it is recorded in Mark chapter 8, certain of the Pharisees sought a sign from him that they would believe. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek after a sign? So signs and wonders by themselves are not a reason to believe, and they are not a necessary component to the faith. But the people looking for proof that they should believe in something seek to see signs and wonders by which they may indeed be deceived. On the other hand, the ancient children of Israel, who were brought up out of Egypt in the Exodus, saw signs and wonders from Yahweh, but they still did not believe, as we read from Jeremiah chapter 32, where in a prayer the prophet says that Yahweh had brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders, and with a strong hand, and with a stretched out arm, and with great terror and hast given them this land, which thou didst swear to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and possessed it, but they obeyed not thy voice, neither walked in thy law. They have done nothing of all that thou commanded them to do. Therefore thou hast caused all this evil to come upon them. If they had truly believed in the signs and wonders which they had seen, then they should also have obeyed the God who showed them those things. Yet each of these examples serve to show us that signs and wonders by themselves are nothing. So from Isaiah chapter 8, we may see what signs and wonders matter most.
Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait upon Yahweh that hides his face from the house of Jacob. And I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from Yahweh of hosts, who dwells in Mount Zion. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep, and that mutter, Should not a people seek unto their God, for the living to the dead? To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So here we may see that in a messianic context, that Christ himself and the children who were faithful to him were for signs and wonders, and that those who keep the word of God and speak according to his word, they are for signs and wonders that the children of Israel who demonstrated their faith in God when they believed Christ, they are indeed the only signs and wonders which we should need as validation for our faith. Actually acting in accordance with one's faith is more important than any empty profession. Thus we see here, the officer of the king says to him, Master, you must come down before my child dies. Yahshua says to him, You go, or you must go, as the verb is imperative. Your son lives. The man trusted in, or believed in, the word which Yahshua spoke to him, and he went. Once again, that Codex Beze here has the diminutive Basiliscus, Basiliscus, I'm sorry, rather than Basilicus, the accent switches, which is consistent with the reading of that manuscript at verse 46. The real difference in spelling is only one letter, the addition of an additional S. Here John himself observed, that not only did the man know through faith that Yahshua Christ could heal his child, but as soon as Christ had told him that his child was healed, he also believed through faith that the child had in fact been healed. The man acted according to that belief by leaving without further question. So for that he had been rewarded, although he remained curious. In the verses which follow, that curiosity is demonstrated. And John writes this account as if he had witnessed it, but he could not have been present to do so, as he would have had to have traveled back to Capernaum along with the man. Therefore, he must have had contact with the man again, at a point later in time, in order to learn of this event. So he wrote of the man's return home. And already going down, his servants met with him, saying that his child lives. The phrase going down refers to the travel of the man from Cana to Capernaum.
While Capernaum was on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Cana was in the hill country to the west. The Greeks often used phrases such as going up or going down to describe travel from or to the sea, but especially in reference to the Mediterranean Sea. In here, it refers to the Sea of Galilee. Therefore, he inquired about the hour from them in which he had gotten better. So they said to him that yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever had left him. The seventh hour would have been around 2 p.m. And so we see that the man could not get home to Capernaum that same day on which he had approached Yahshua, the journey being at least 16 miles. So he saw his servants the next day, who came out to meet him before he could see his son. And they told him that the child had been healed the day before. While the man was still in Cana with Yahshua, the man wanted to verify that the son was healed at that time when Yahshua told him he was healed. And here we see that he did indeed get that verification. Then the father knew, because it was at that hour in which Yahshua said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed, and his whole household. The children of Israel were expecting a Messiah, and understood that the Messiah would be a healer. This we may read in Isaiah chapter 57, from verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy, I dwell in the, whole, in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, neither will I always be wroth. For the spirit should fail before me and the souls which I have made for the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth, and smote him. I hid me and was wroth, and he went on forwardly in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, and will heal him, speaking generally of the children of Israel. I will lead him also, and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off, the children of Israel, in their wanderings. And to him that is near, saith Yahweh, and I will heal him. This very passage was cited by Paul of Tarsus in his epistle to the Ephesians in reference to Christ where he wrote that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross having slain the enmity thereby and came and preached to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh contrasting Paul was contrasting the scattered Israelites with those who were under the law in Judea likewise 
we read in Jeremiah chapter 17. O Yahweh, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken Yahweh, the fountain of living waters. Heal me, O Yahweh, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For thou art my praise. Behold, they say unto me, Where is the word of Yahweh? Let it come now. Of course, John has already informed us that Yahshua Christ is that word made flesh. But the healing miracles which Christ had performed were not the full objective of these prophecies. Rather, the healing miracles were only a sign of assurance that these prophecies would have their ultimate fulfillment in him. For this, the people which were given to him, meaning those of the children of Israel, those of the true children of Israel, who remained and who were faithful, were for signs and wonders, and that is why those who needed healing were healed. So we read in Jeremiah chapter 30 of that coming healing in that broader scope, I should probably say, within that broader scope, that broader prophetic scope. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee. Though I make a full land of all nations where I have scattered thee, Yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. For thus saith Yahweh, Thy bruise is incurable, and thy wound is grievous. There is none to plead thy cause, that thou mayest be bound up. Thou hast no healing medicines. All thy lovers, the false gods of the other nations, have forgotten thee. They seek thee not, for I have wounded thee with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of thine iniquity, because thy sins were increased. Why criest thou for thine affliction? Thine sorrow is incurable for the multitude of thine iniquity because thy sins were increased. I have done these things unto thee. Therefore, all they that devour thee shall be devoured, and all thine adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. And they that spoil thee shall be a spoil, and all that prey upon thee will I give for a prey. For I will restore thee unto health. The address being to the nation as a whole. And I will heal thee of thy wounds, saith Yahweh, because they called thee an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeks after. Of course, no man sought after Israel in captivity, as that is also the promise and purpose of the Messiah, Yahshua Christ, that he would gather his sheep for himself through his gospel, ultimately through his gospel.
Now John informs us with a conclusion in reference to the healing of the officer's child. Now this is again the second sign Yahshua made having come from Judea into Galilee. This is not necessarily the second sign which Yahshua made but the second sign the second sign which he made in Galilee after coming from Judea. He had come from Judea from his baptism in Judea before he made the water into wine at Cana. He had recently arrived in Cana at that time also. And so we have the same circumstance here. John uses language that merely attributes the signs to Yahshua where he wrote of a sign Yahshua made. But the making of a sign does not suggest that Yahshua had actually performed anything. Rather, he only spoke the phrase, You go, your son lives. The words alone were enough to make the sign, or to announce the sign. Today, in denominational churches, we see so-called healers who employ all sorts of theatrics in accompaniment with their supposed miracles. Actors, and he is only an actor, actually he's a Jewish actor, so he's a devil. Actors like Benny Hinn wave their arms in the air or point in an exaggerated, over-animated manner, and their intended subjects faint or suddenly fall or are even thrown to the ground. There is none of that in the miracles of Christ which are described in the Gospel. When he made his first sign in Galilee, in John chapter 2, he did even less than that. Where turning the water to wine, he only said to the servants, Fill the urns with water. Then once they did that, he said, Now draw it and bring it to the table master. The servants did as he had asked. And by the time they brought the urns to the master of the feast, the water was somehow changed into wine. The miracles of Christ were not performed with pomp, ceremony, or theatrical performance. This may be compared to one of the few mistakes which were made by Moses. The great leader of the Exodus which was also theatrical in nature. Yahweh did not really punish Moses when he had come down from Sinai, saw the idolatry of the golden calf, and smashed the tablets of the law in anger. And Yahweh even made new tablets, as we see in Exodus chapters 32 and 34. But for his theatrics at the rock in the desert of Zin, Yahweh did punish him. In Numbers chapter 20 we read, And Yahweh spoke unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and thy brother Aaron, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water. 
and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. Earlier, at the rock of Horeb, as it is recorded in Exodus chapter 17, Moses was told to smite the rock, and water would come out. Here, Moses was evidently being tested. He was told to take his rod, but he was not told to smite the rock. So we read a little further on in Numbers chapter 20. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. Then, after Moses improvised in this manner, taking the credit for himself and his brother, where he said we, we read, And Yahweh spoke unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. In that instance, evidently Moses did not believe Yahweh, because he did not do exactly as he was told. He smote the rock twice when he was not told to smite it. And for his theatrics, he was barred the final glory of bringing the children of Israel into the promised land. Yahweh was not sanctified by the action of Moses, perhaps because when Moses smote the rock twice, he appeared to be making the water come forth, taking the glory for himself rather than allowing the people to realize that it came from God. So the contrary example is that Yahshua Christ, by merely speaking a word, makes it evident that the glory belongs to Yahweh the Father, the author of the deed. When men add theatrics, flailing arms and pointing hands, thrashing and screaming, they pretend to glorify themselves. Of course, most of these so-called healers in the modern churches are pretenders, but the faithful would not be deceived by signs and wonders if only they abode by the word of God. It is the acts of faith by the children of God, by their obedience to the word of God, which are the true signs and wonders in this evil age. For the same purpose, we read in the opening verses of Hosea chapter 6, Come, and let us return unto Yahweh, for he has torn, and he will heal us. He has smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know, if we follow on to know Yahweh, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come to us as the rain, as the later and former rain unto the earth. 
That same rain is also a promise of Christ, which is evident in Joel chapter 2. And as the Apostle James wrote in chapter 5 of his epistle, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth, and has long patience for it, until he receives the early and later rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now we shall commence with John chapter 5. After these things there was a feast of the Judeans, and Joshua went up to Jerusalem. This feast was certainly one of the three where it was required that all men appear at the temple. And therefore, it may have been a Passover, which would have been the second Passover of Yahshua's ministry, but not necessarily. It may also have been Pentecost or Tabernacles. John specifically, or I should say explicitly, mentions three different Passovers in his Gospel at chapter 2 verse 13, chapter 6 verse 4, and chapter 11 verse 55, that last being the Passover of the crucifixion. It is apparent that the ministry of Christ lasted for three and a half years, according to the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And the allegory in the parable of the fig tree in Luke chapter 13. Ostensibly, with Christ being baptized at the beginning of his 30th year, according to Luke chapter 3, the Passover upon which he was crucified would be the fourth Passover of his ministry, since a three and a half year ministry for Christ would necessarily include four Passovers. Then, if this was not a Passover, John mentioned only three of the four, while the Synoptic Gospels only explicitly mention the final one. We have discussed the chronology at length in the appropriate portions of our commentary on the Gospel of Luke, and four Passovers are necessary for a three and a half year ministry so long as it begins in the later part of the first year, that the first calendar year of that ministry, it is evident that Christ did begin his ministry in the later part of his 30th year, of the calendar year in which he turned 30. Let's put it that way. And there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep's Gate, a pool called by name in Hebrew, Beth Zatha, having five porches. Now, here the King James Version reads, Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. So we see two significant differences in our translation. Neither the word gate nor market are in the text. So, admittedly, either one is a guess. However, I believe that gate is a 
much better guess than market. The building of the walls of Jerusalem in the 5th century before Christ was described by Nehemiah, and the building of the sheep's gate is found in the opening verses of John chapter 3, and it is mentioned, I'm sorry, of Nehemiah chapter 3, and it is mentioned again in Nehemiah chapter 12. There we see the words, oikodomesan tain pulain, that means the gate, tain probatakain, that means the sheep. Or they built the sheep gate in English. Here we have only the phrase epitabrokotic, I'm sorry, epitabrokotake, which is a preposition, epi, and the dative case form of the feminine adjective, heiprobotike. The masculine form of the adjective is proboticus, and it means of or pertaining to sheep. While the word gate is not in the original text, we would rather believe that sheep's gate is implied after the description of the gates in Nehemiah rather than the inference which is found in the King James Version where it has sheep market. In Nehemiah, besides the sheep gate, are also mentioned the gate of the valley, the fountain gate, the fish gate, the old gate, the dung gate, the water gate, that's where they got Nixon, the horse gate, the east gate, the gate of Mithcad, the prison gate, and the gate of Ephraim if I have not missed any others. And of course I'm kidding about Nixon, even though it was certainly the Jews that got him. As for the pool, rather than Bethzatha, as we have it, the third century papyrus, the earliest of all the papyrus, all the papyri, the third century papyrus P66 has Bed Sedan, B E D S A I D A N. The third century papyrus P75, which is esteemed to be not much older than P66. And the fourth century Codex Vaticanus, and the fifth century Codex Borgianus, all have Bethsaida which was a town in Galilee mentioned at John chapter 1 verse 44 and elsewhere. They are very old and generally reliable manuscripts, but they evidently all have the same mistake because I can't imagine that Bethsaida belongs here. The 5th century codexes, Alexandrinus and Ephraimisiri, the Codex O78, it doesn't have a fancy name, and the majority text, and therefore the King James Version, all have Bethesda. Our text here, having Bethzatha, follows the 4th century Codex Sinaiticus. 
Beth Zatha apparently means House of Olives in Hebrew, for which see Strong's Dictionary Numbers Strong's Hebrew Dictionary Numbers 1004, that's the word Beth, which means house, and 2132, which is an olive. While Bethesda, Bethesda, the reading in the King James Version, means house of mercy. Throughout all of my translations, I endeavored to present what I believed was the most reliable reading from the various manuscripts. Here we see how difficult that is, and I am certain that the result is not perfect. I also strive to check other sources which may corroborate any particular reading. But while Flavius Josephus mentions several pools in Jerusalem, probably close to a half dozen, and one of them is also found in 1st Maccabees. None of those mentioned were called by any of the names which appear in the various manuscripts here. For those looking for symbolism in the names, perhaps Bethesda is more fitting according to its meaning, House of Mercy. But the word Bethzatha, meaning House of Olives, and the olive branch representing peace, that is just as fitting an allegory, the pool being by the gate of the sheep. The peace of Yahweh, as well as the mercy of Yahweh, result in healing for the lost sheep of Israel. Now where John is describing the porches of this pool, upon these laid a multitude of the sick, blind, lame, gaunt, and gaunt is literally withered, the Greek word zairus. We may expect a conjunction before that last word, but there is none in the text in the manuscripts. We have declined to include the text, which appears at the end of verse 3, where the King James Version has the words, waiting for the moving of the water after the reading of the majority text and Codex 078 and where the Codex Beze adds paralyzed expecting the movement of the water after that word gaunt or zairus rather in this verse where we omit that part of the passage our text follows the papyri P66 and P75 and the Codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, both of the 4th century, Alexandrinus, Ephraimisiri, and Borgianus, those of the 5th century. We have also neglected to include the entire text which appears in verse 4 of the King James Version, which says, For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. This passage is found in the majority text, and with slight variations in the 5th century Codex Alexandrinus, and the 6th century Codex 078.
the interpolation certainly seems to explain what is suggested in the text here and in the verses which follow. But the pericope is not found, a pericope is a portion of scripture, the pericope is not found in the 3rd century papyri P66 or P75 or in the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Ephraimi Siri, Beze, or Borgianus, all of which are from the 4th and 5th centuries. Therefore, we must reject the passage as a marginal note and a later interpolation in the Codex Alexandrinus, which is the codex upon which the majority text is based to a great degree. And although the passage seems to be acceptable, it is not necessarily correct. We must certainly reject it, even if the explanation is valid. We must certainly reject it as not belonging to the original text of John's Gospel, based on the fact that it does not appear in in a significant majority of the earlier manuscripts. Now, speaking of the pool of Bethzatha, or if you will, Bethesda, you could flip a coin on that one because of the nature of the manuscripts that it does appear in. Now, speaking of the pool of Bethzatha, there was a certain man there having his sickness for 38 years. Now, some texts have 30 and 8 years. And, interestingly, the oldest of the papyri, P66 and P75, have the symbols for 38, two Greek letters, rather than spelling out the words. Sarcastically speaking, these 38 years may as well be the amount of time that a sick man can wait for certain medical procedures in many of the nationalized healthcare systems of today. If that is not quite true yet, it certainly appears as if it may be true in the near future. In that manner, we may perceive that this event is a prophetic allegory of the modern so-called healthcare systems. I say that with my tongue in my cheek. Yahshua, seeing him laying down, and having known that he has much time there already, says to him, Do you wish to be made healthy? The sick man replied to him, Master, I have no man, that when the water is agitated, he would cast me into the pool. But by the time I come, another descends before me. Lacking any other explanation, the one provided by that interpolation between verses 3 and 5 is the only one available. However, it should only have the status of an early marginal note, and it is not a part of the canon. Notice that this man evidently has no knowledge of Yahshua, and he makes no profession of faith, except in the belief that if he could be the first into the pool when the water is agitated, then he would be healed.
But nevertheless, Yahshua says to him in verse 8, Arise, take your cot, and walk. And immediately the man became healthy and took his cot and walked. That cot may have been just a, a mattress roll, but it was some sort of bed that the man could lay on. And it was a Sabbath on that day. Therefore, the Judeans said to the healed man, or to him that was healed, It is a Sabbath, and it is not allowed for you to carry your cot. Another analogy to modern times. Reading the Gospel accounts and thinking about life today compared to the way things were only a hundred years ago, or even only 50, we can understand the very source of and reasons for all of the burdensome regulations which we live under today. The ancient Judahites were punished for accepting the persons of the wicked, and the wicked came to rule over them as a result. When we ourselves accepted the persons of the Jews, as peers and citizens in our society, the, from the early 20th century in America, they rose to dominance of our own political and economic systems, but even sooner in the nations of Europe. And we have been oppressed by this same burdensome system of regulations ever since. Yahshua Christ would often condemn them for being hypocrites, and for binding men under burdens which they themselves did not bear. But this was apparently a routine part of life for the man, and he answered the Judeans innocently. And he replied to them, He who made me healthy said to me, Take your cot and walk. Like that should be enough of an authority. They asked him, Who is the man having said to you, take it and walk. Now the codices, Alexandrinus and Washingtonensis, both want, both of the 5th century, both want verse 12 in its entirety, which the editors of the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece in the 27th edition suggests is an accidental scribal omission probably made because verses 11 and 12 both end in the same Greek word, the same Greek word for walk. But the cured man did not know who he is, who had healed him. For Yahshua swam out of the crowd which is in that place. That last metaphor certainly shows that the Apostle John had a sense of humor. <laughs> the, the translation of the final verb, where it says that Yahshua swam out of the crowd, is a perfectly literal translation of the verb ekneo. It is quite felicitous that John had used this particular verb to describe Yahshua's departure from a very crowded place which was near a pool since according to the intermediate Liddell and Scott lexicon it means to swim out, 
to swim to land, escape by swimming, and then generally to escape. The translation found in the King James Version, which reads, For Jesus had conveyed himself away. Loses the wordplay which is contained in the metaphor. John purposely used this colorful, colorful metaphor in this particular instance, and we shouldn't take that away from him. The phrase, the cured man here, is from a substantive, hoiathais. The Codex Beze has another substantive instead, hoasthenon which is the same phrase that is rendered as the sick man in verse 7, as the man had been sick at that time. In verse 10, the phrase, the healed man, is from a perfect tense dative case substantive, to tetherapumino. The root words of these substantives referring to the cured or healed man are synonyms in the sense that they appeared here. I use different words to translate them in order to distinguish the fact that John used different words in his description. Ultimately, the Judeans do learn who it was that had healed this man, and we see in verse 14. After these things, Yahshua finds him in the temple and said to him, Look, you have become healthy. Sin no longer, lest something worse should happen to you when you lose your house in a hurricane you should keep your mouth shut or something even worse might happen to you when you have no house at all you might get to a lower state I'm sorry I'm making an off-the-cuff remark intended to describe the condition of a former friend sin no longer lest something worse should happen to you not all human illness is the product of individual sin as we shall see when we get to John chapter 9. But evidently, that did seem to be the case with this man. So Yahshua exhorts him in that manner. Ostensibly, there may have been a lengthier exchange between them, but the style of the writing in the Gospels is very terse. So the account of the man concludes. Then the man departed and reported to the Judeans that Yahshua is he having made him healthy. When we return with the next portion of this commentary, we shall commence with the result of this news. As the Judeans persecuted Christ for healing a man on a Sabbath, but the poor man who had been healed by Yahshua was not an informant in the nefarious sense of the term. Rather, he must have been full of joy at his healing, and he must have imagined that the officials of the Judeans would have been full of joy and excitement to find a man who could perform such a miracle. But instead, the officials were full of envy and wanted to kill him something which the man himself could not have foreseen. That will be all for 
this evening, Yahweh willing, we will be here next Friday to commence with John chapter 5 at verse 16. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.